The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the previous episodes, we began to ask and answer various classic questions about death, hell, and the afterlife. Our goal was and is to provide correct definitions and a biblical worldview framework from which we can biblically define and understand various words and terms commonly used regarding death, hell, and the afterlife which oftentimes cause some confusion. More importantly, our goal is to allow God's truth and reality to provide tangible hope and joy for our eternal future for those who would by His grace be called to do so. In the previous episode, we identified 14 terms for definition and discussion. At this point, we have largely defined and discussed the first 11 terms, including death, the intermediate state, sleep, the grave, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, paradise, Abraham's bosom, and hell. 
In this episode, we continue with questions, definitions, and discussion regarding the remaining three terms, including purgatory, lake of fire, and heaven. With this in mind, let's return to our vocabulary and terminology list and proceed to define the following terms according to a proper biblical world and life view. Number 12. Purgatory. The word purgatory can be traced back to the Latin word purgatories, meaning purifying, and which itself comes from the root verb pugare, meaning purge, to purge, or to cleanse. Insofar as to what purgatory is, let's be candid in saying that the concept of purgatory and what it is at present, is almost entirely a doctrine currently held by the Roman Catholic Church. The term purgatory has been included only because the term has come to take on a vague association with being equal with hell, since common purgatory images in theology involve fire and purging punishment. Thus, for those who have only studied and or paid attention in a very shallow level, purgatory might be synonymous with hell. In order to fairly define purgatory, rather than giving my opinion as to what it is, let me quote from the website Catholic Answers regarding the topic. Quote, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines purgatory as a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, which is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. It notes that this final purification of the elect is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The purification is necessary because, as Scripture teaches, nothing unclean will enter the presence of God in heaven, and while we may die with our mortal sins forgiven, there can still be many impurities in us, specifically venial sins, and the temporal punishment due to sins already forgiven." Unquote. Now, just to clear things up for those who might not be familiar the Catholic Church divides sin into two classes, venial and mortal. The Catholic Church would define them as follows. Quote, venial sins are slight sins. They do not break our fellowship with God, although they injure it. A mortal sin is a serious Grave or mortal sin is the knowing and willful violation of God's law in a serious matter. For example, idolatry, adultery, murder, slander. Unquote. Secondly, continuing with the Catechism, it continues to say, quote, Purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven which is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, the still imperfectly purified is referring to those venial 
or small sins that have been committed since the last time that person participated in the sacrament of reconciliation, unquote. So, let's attempt to simplify and explain purgatory. According to the Catholic doctrine, a person can truly be saved and receive the full benefit of Christ's atoning work on the cross and forgiveness of sins. That person can then commit quote-unquote lesser sins after receiving the sacrament of reconciliation. If that person dies physically, having not received the sacrament of reconciliation before their death, then that person will be required to go to purgatory where they will remain until those quote-unquote lesser sins have been purged or cleansed by the temporary punishment they receive there. Once that person has been fully purged or cleansed, then that person will proceed to heaven and be reconciled to God. Now, in order to examine all the details to completely prove or disprove the doctrine of purgatory would require an entire series of studies. We would have to debate the validity of 2 Maccabees as being an inspired, authoritative book from which the Catholic Church gets the majority of its grounds to teach purgatory as being truthful. Assuming we grant 2 Maccabees as valid, we would then have serious issues on internal issues within the book with the very verses which support purgatory. In these verses, Judas, the main character, makes a monetary contribution along with prayers for dead soldiers who were guilty of idolatry so that they might be delivered from their suffering in purgatory. The fatal problem with this is that, according to Catholic doctrine, idolatry is clearly a mortal sin, which cannot be forgiven, not a lesser or, quote, venial, unquote, sin. So, the very supposed proof for purgatory is somewhat self-refuting by Roman Catholic Church's own doctrine. We further would have to debate whether we should hang our doctrines for the authority of God and the issues of death, hell, and the afterlife on God's Word and God's Word alone, i.e. sola scriptura, or whether we should place ultimate authority in the body of the Catholic Church, the Pope, Church tradition, and or the Church Fathers. We could likewise spend time documenting the instances throughout history in almost every culture, including the Egyptian, Grecian, and Roman, all of which had clearly pagan doctrines identical to purgatory, which those cultures observed. Thus, we would have ample material with which to seriously question the legitimacy of purgatory as being authored by God. All of these arguments have been and continue to exist since the Reformation, and they likely will not get solved until Jesus returns. To complicate matters, 
the matter of purgatory is further embellished by the writings of Dante Alighieri in his work Dante's Divine Comedy, which we made mention of earlier, who fancifully embroiders purgatory into having seven levels. However, rather than go down thousand-year-old rabbit trails, I would keep the issue and legitimacy of purgatory as being scripturally or unscripturally simple. Number one, first of all, Nowhere does Scripture differentiate different levels of sin. Sin is always defined by the Greek word hamartia, meaning, quote, missing the mark, unquote, or falling short of God's glory. Romans 3 and elsewhere repeatedly confirms that all have fallen short, and that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. James 2.10 would likewise remind us that, quote, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, is guilty of all, unquote. So, there is no scriptural basis for dividing sin by any names. All means all. Sin is sin, and the penalty for sin is death, which is separation from God. Number two. For those who by the grace of God are drawn to faith in Christ, Jesus forgives all all sin, past, present, and future. Christ's atoning propitiatory work is finished, complete, paid in full. His atoning work is thoroughly efficacious, efficient, and sufficient for all who are truly in him. Rather than me re-arguing the case for this fact, simply read Romans chapter 7, where for 25 verses, Paul, a man who knows Jesus Christ intimately, bemoans the reality that he suffers under the law of his members, i.e. the flesh, which seek to bring him back into captivity. He contrasts this law of the flesh, which seeks to bring him back into bondage, against the spiritual law of his mind, which seeks to delight after the law of God, after the inward man. Paul concludes that he is a wretched man and questions who will deliver him from death. Then, we read Romans chapter 8, which opens with, quote, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, unquote. The passage then closes with saying, quote, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, unquote. It is telling that we never hear Paul or any other apostle slash disciple of Christ reassuring themselves that if all else fails, that they can go to purgatory and expiate some unaddressed sin or sins so as to be granted access to heaven and fellowship with God. In every case, despite the circumstances, despite the setbacks, the unanimous belief was that of Paul. Quote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, unquote. Notice, not absent from the body and uh, whatever time is necessary in purgatory to purge remaining sin or sins and then eventually to be present with the Lord, but absent from the body and immediately present with the Lord without delay. So the bottom line is either Jesus' propitiatory atoning work is sufficient or it is deficient. If you or I can commit quote-unquote lesser sins for which Jesus' atoning work was incapable of addressing, then Jesus died in vain to that degree. If I can spend one minute or a million years in purgatory paying for or purging my sins, then I can say I didn't need Jesus for those sins. If I can merit a portion of my salvation via purgatory, then to that degree it is no more grace. It's about me and my sufferings. And what have I merited? If I can add to Jesus' work by suffering here or elsewhere, then Jesus' work is deficient to that degree. As has already been observed by many before me, it would appear that purgatory is an insurance clause designed to give some the false assurance of a second chance just quote-unquote in case they don't fully make the grade. But the in-case insurance is really nothing more than an inability or unwillingness to fully understand that our assurance for salvation rests solely in Christ and Christ alone, that we are saved by faith and by faith alone and by Christ alone. The doctrine of purgatory totally undermines and contradicts the essential and clear teachings and reality of the atoning finished work of Christ on the cross, which is the focus of redemptive history and the nucleus message of God's word from cover to cover. On this basis, 
with all due respect, we must stand on and contend for the clear word once and for all delivered to the saints and reject the doctrine of purgatory by whatever name as heretical and false. Number 13, Lake of Fire. The phrase, quote, Lake of Fire, unquote, is found only four times in Scripture, all of which can be found in the book of Revelation. Insofar as the original language is concerned, there are no translational issues here. There is no secret code involved. The Greek word lake is the same Greek word used to refer to any body of water which qualifies as a lake. The Greek word for fire is the same Greek word used to refer to any combination of oxygen and chemicals which create combustion called fire. The typical Western European reading and understanding of such phrases would have us concocting literal geographical locations where there are lakes of fire and brimstone, perhaps similar to an active volcano where people and their physical bodies and or soul slash spirit will be thrown and where they will reside for all eternity to suffer conscious suffering and torment. Now, while it must be granted that it is possible for God to create such realities, the question is whether God and or the writer of Revelation intended for their readers to believe every description as literal in that way. The answer is that we need to identify how the writer and the audience for any given book of the Bible understood that book according to their culture and genre. In the case of Revelation, the writer and audience of its day, which was primarily Jewish, were all well acquainted with the various forms of Jewish literature, including the Jewish apocalyptic genre, which includes Revelation. Jewish apocalyptic literature is an issue which is well documented, but is frequently forgotten in terms of understanding, resolving, and interpreting the Bible in a modern-day world which is now guided almost exclusively by the Western European Renaissance approach to interpreting literature. In essence, it's akin to having written a book using a language for which you need a particular dictionary to define terms, and then attempting to have someone else read the same book with a different dictionary to define the same terms. The result is inevitably going to be a certain level of confusion and misunderstanding. With the genre of Jewish apocalyptic writing, the consumer of this style of writing would have no trouble reading about lakes of fire, the moon dripping blood, the stars falling to earth, heaven and earth departing as a scroll, and references to many-headed dragons and other imagery to which the modern ear 
would hear fictional fantasy, myth, and exaggeration. But to the first century Jewish mind, these were never intended to be literal. They were instead expressions and imagery which were intended to convey the idea of apocalypse, cataclysm, destruction, the end of the world, and other themes involving the end times, the coming judgment from God upon all mankind, and the fate of the righteous versus the unrighteous. These were and are all realities, but the actual substances of what these events and situations would look like had no words in any language to describe them. Thus, during the intertestamental period, the Jews of that day gradually and progressively began to draw upon known cultural imagery and phenomena, including astronomical, geographical, and animal symbolism to communicate eschatological truths regarding the coming Messiah, redemption, the resurrection of the dead, the end of the world, and God's judgment upon mankind. As we look at scripture, we see repeated examples of this kind of genre, in particular in Joel, Amos, Zechariah, Daniel, as well as within the teachings of Jesus particularly the Olivet Discourse. This genre finds its zenith within various apocryphal and pseudepigraphal writings of the so-called intertestamental period. As we get to Revelation, we see the same language, symbolisms, and genre being employed. As proof that Revelation fits squarely within the genre of apocalyptic literature, the Greek word translated as the title of the book Revelation is, in fact, John's, quote, apocalypse, unquote. So the bottom line is that while Revelation and other books employ the vehicle of apocalyptic language, which has allegorical and symbolic imagery, the realities of the underlying Truths which they represent should not be thrown out like the proverbial baby with the bathwater. With this in mind, let's look at the verses in question. For the purposes of reducing confusion, I will use the original Greek language to translate any pertinent terms to conform to the terms we have defined thus far. Revelation 19.20, quote, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, unquote. Revelation 20.10, quote, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever." Unquote. Revelation 20.14 And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Unquote. Finally, Revelation 20.15 Quote, and 
whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, unquote. Now, the first thing to observe is that the above verses fall into the classic mainstream eschatology time frame immediately leading up to the Battle of Armageddon and before the new heaven and the new earth. In chapter 19, we learn that the false prophet and the beast, also known as the Antichrist, are thrown alive into the lake of fire. The word translated alive means living, to live, to breathe, not dead. This would clearly seem to teach that the lake of fire is a place which not only do the soul spirit of people consciously suffer punishment, but also the physical bodies of people. In chapter 2010, after the millennium, which ends in chapter 20, verse 5, the devil, or Satan, is also cast into the lake of fire to join the false prophet and the beast, or Antichrist. Here, we learn that the three suffer conscious punishment for eternity. It is also worth referencing Jesus' Olivet Discourse at this point, found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus comments, looking at the temple, that, quote, not one stone shall be left upon another, unquote. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus three questions. Quote, tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? Unquote. During the next two chapters, Jesus gives several parables and signposts to answer their questions. Beginning in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus reveals what will happen when the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus, comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 through 34, Jesus says, quote, And before him, that's speaking of Jesus, shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Unquote. Continuing in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus contrasts the fate of the sheep with the fate of the goats. Quote, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Unquote. Notice the theme here is judgment regarding the fate of the sheep and the goats, that the goats are told to depart into, quote, everlasting fire, unquote, prepared for the devil and his angels. While the words lake of fire are not used by Jesus, the fact that Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 is the only place in scripture which reveals that the devil, 
i.e. Satan, is cast into the lake of fire, gives us the connection necessary to identify the everlasting fire, which Jesus refers to in Matthew, as one and the same as the lake of fire mentioned in Revelation. We know this also because the phrase, quote, everlasting fire, unquote, used in Matthew is identical to saying, quote, the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever, unquote, as stated in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The final straw, which slam dunk, proves that the two are the same is as follows. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus gives the preamble that the judgment of the sheep and the goats, departing into everlasting fire, is preceded by the Son of Man coming in his glory and sitting upon his throne of glory. Likewise, immediately after the devil, i.e. Satan, is cast into the lake of fire, the next three verses, Revelation 20, 11 through 13, say, quote, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works." Unquote. So here we clearly see that these two books, Revelation and Matthew, are talking about the same event. As we continue immediately following, we find our last two verses referring to the lake of fire back to back. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14, quote, And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, unquote. Revelation chapter 20 verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, unquote. So, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, physical death, the inevitable and logical result and consequence of Genesis 3, is finally ended. There is no more death because the final judgment for all mankind is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 13 has taken place. Satan slash the devil, the false prophet, and the antichrist who are responsible for temptation, sin, and rebellion are cast into the lake of fire. Thus, there is no more sin, no more rebellion, no more death. Because there is no physical death, and all those who were formerly dead have been raised and judged, there is no more need for Hades, Sheol, or the intermediate state. Consequently, Hades, the intermediate state, is cast into the lake of fire. As a footnote, we are told that the bottom line is that if your name does not appear written in the book of life, you are cast into the lake of fire. 
Just to round things out, the very next thing we read is Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, which says, quote, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea, unquote. So the last piece of the puzzle tells us what has just happened with Satan, the false prophet, the Antichrist, i.e. the beast, death, Hades, Sheol, and or the immediate state being thrown into the lake of fire is immediately followed by the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, first earth, has passed away. In other words, as we compare the events of Revelation chapters 19 through 21, we now know that the timeline there qualifies as the end of the world, which was one of the things Jesus' disciples asked Jesus about in Matthew chapter 25. Consequently, we can say with certitude that based upon what we have looked at, that the term lake of fire is a situation which constitutes the final state. It is final because once there, those that are there, are there for eternity. The intermediate state is gone. Death is gone. Final judgment by God has been made. And there is no appeal. Perhaps, as a last question, we could ask whether the lake of fire is the same as Gehenna. Given the fact that across the board, the Jewish, Rabbinic, and New Testament literature, including, in particular, Jesus himself, consistently referred to Gehenna as a place of judgment or final judgment, as well as the imagery of fire, we would have to conclude with a certain high level of certainty that the two are the same. While the exact metaphor language may differ, the underlying idea that there is eternal judgment, eternal burning of fire and brimstone, eternal destruction, eternal suffering, and a unanimous repulsion and aversion to the idea of going there, we would again be motivated to equate the two as being the same. For the time being, however, this will conclude this episode. Please join me for part 9 of this series. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I would encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.